Welcome to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century, where we go in search of voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. This podcast is inspired by a line from the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. You see, said the poet, I am one who likes to look for things. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and like Rilke, I like to look for things. Sometimes, let's be honest, more than I like to find them. In season one of In Search Of, we are exploring saints and sages, inner and outer landscapes, and the dynamics of searching and finding. We take listeners more deeply into the experiences that I had while researching and writing my book, Wild Woman, in which I went in search of an elusive fifth century saint named Mary of Egypt. I traveled from Upper Egypt and into Jordan in search of this person who had so captivated my imagination. For those of you who have read my book, you will know that I reached a dark place in the journey to find Mary of Egypt. I had reached the western bank of the Jordan River and felt like I still had not found Mary in the desert as I had hoped. I had a little bit of a meltdown at the monastery of St. Harassimus, where I mourned what I thought was the last spot on my search where Mary might be remembered. The following day, I crossed over into Jordan with no goal more than to visit the wilderness that was Mary's home for most of her life. To my surprise, I encountered what my guest today calls the site of Mary of Egypt. These are the marvels of searching. When you think you're at an end, you may only be at a beginning. Dr. Mohammed Wahib is a professor of archaeology at Heshemite University in Jordan and has published more than 50 books and 200 articles on the archaeology of Jordan and is still working on the data from the baptism site. I have been eager to meet him since I first heard his name on the eastern bank of the Jordan. Welcome to In Search of Dr. Wahib. Yes, thank you for this interview. Tell me a little bit of the story of how you came to excavate the east bank of the Jordan at the baptismal site. How did you know that's where you wanted to begin your own search? I think that the place of baptism, site of Jesus' baptism, was located on the eastern bank of Jordan River. This is not my personal idea, but it is derived from the Holy Text. When I read the Gospels, especially Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses number 28, saying these things were done in Bethany. Beyond the Jordan for us is the eastern bank. For those who are living on the west bank, means beyond the Jordan, eastern bank of the river. So I started search there with my team. And also we found in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses number 42. And these uh, things were done in Bethany beyond the Jordan, and Jesus escaped beyond the Jordan, where John was at first baptizing. So when I read two verses from the Gospel of John, I start thinking that the place should be on the eastern bank, on our side, on the Jordanian side. It's not a matter west or east of the river, but where is the real site of Jesus Christ? where he lived, where he met John the Baptist. So I tried to follow the description of pilgrims and travelers. Then I started with pilgrim of Bordeaux, a man came from France. And then he said that the place where Jesus was baptized five Roman miles to the north of the Dead Sea. Then I found there is a remains in this area. And also St. Helena, she is mother of the emperor, Constantine. She arrived there and she crossed the river and she came to the eastern bank of Jordan River. And she met there also a lot of monks who lived in this area, in this wilderness. And they asked 
her why you don't build here churches and monasteries. And she said, you can immediately start this building. And then also what led me there to stop the destruction of the remains, because there are some robbers in the area looking for gold, looking for coins, looking for archaeological items. So I tried to stop them. So this pushed me to come to this area to start digging. And also what encouraged us in Jordan to work as a group, as a team, as a Department of Antiquities and Ministry of Tourism is the signing of peace treaty with Israel in 1994. This enabled us to go down to the river, to the borders there, and then to start working in safe. Those are, um, we can say, uh, elements support us to work in the area on the Eastern Bank. And also I like uh, religious tourism. From my childhood, I love this type of tourism, the religious tourism and the history of monks, saints, uh, holy men, every, everything about related to them in the wilderness, in the caves, in the monasteries, in the wilderness east of the bank of the river. And also I am care about the Holy Quran because there are verses regarding Jesus and his mother Mary. So I have some questions related to the history of John, Jesus and uh, St. Mary. It is a wonderful place to visit as a tourist, I have to say. Absolutely delighted and um, amazed by what I saw there. I wonder if you could talk about what some of your most exciting and surprising discoveries were as you excavated. A lot of things excite you when you visit the site and look and ramble here and there and goes down to the river and they throw the valley, which is called Wadi Kharrar. Kharrar in Arabic means sound of the running water and the animal life, the plants, everything there is exciting. But also the most exciting archaeological remains found there is the mosaic floors where I have Elijah's Hill. There is a small low hill in the valley down, which is called Elijah's Hill. And according to the Old Testament, Elijah was ascended to the heavens by a fiery chariot from this place. So there is a mosaic. There is also inscription. I found it in, on, on Elijah's Hill because a monks later on came here and built monasteries and this small low hill. And one of the inscriptions saying that the builder of this monastery and the related church, his name is Rotorius, by the name of God, our Lord. Uh, Rotorius built this monastery. God give him blessings. This is the translation of the inscription written in old Greek language there. And also what has excited me in, when I working down to the river on the Eastern Bank is the discovery of the garment church. There is a small church. They said, uh, I mean the pilgrims and the travelers, that when Jesus goes down to the water, he put his garment aside. So later, when the believers came to the site and adopted uh, the site officially, they built there a church, and they call it the Church of the Garment. So this is another exciting issue found uh, there. And also there is a steps going down from um, a huge church called John the Baptist Church. Steps goes down to the river, which is a marble black steps. So many things can excite you. Everything there is exciting you, but there are some elements for me as an archaeologist, the Elijah's Hill, the inscription, the garment church, and the steps, or the marble steps, really uh, distinguished uh, discoveries in sight of Jesus' baptism. 
What are some of the biggest challenges in excavating this site? What are some of the things that you've had to face over these decades? This is a wilderness, really, and you face a lot of challenges. One of these challenges is the temperature, high degrees of temperature, 50 degrees. I mean, this is so much for a human being to live there. So you should protect yourself and your team from this challenge. And also, there are some snakes, scorpions scattered here and there because it's a hot area. And also because this is a border uh, between Jordan and Israel, there was minefields. And so those should be cleared, should be removed in order to enable us to reach all the sites or also the distinguished areas. So the engineering department of the Jordanian military served us and helped us so much in removing these mines. And also the budget is another challenge or limit. Those limitations, where is the budget of the work for excavations, for restoration, for the workman? So these are challenges, but by help of our God, all these difficulties removed from our path to discover site of Jesus Baptist. As you know, I'm especially interested in the site of Mary of Egypt. And I'm very curious about the story of your discovery of that site. How did you come to know or understand that this was a site dedicated to Mary of Egypt? And what did that mean to you? Yeah, when I started digging, we started first uh, in Elijah's Hill, which is approximately two kilometers away from the river to the east. And along the valley, which is two kilometers, there are a lot of caves scattered here and there and some buildings, some remains. But when I became very closer to the river Jordan there, I found an accumulation of stones and sand. And I asked myself, what about these heaps of stones and sand? What represent? And I have in my memory a lot of information about St. Mary of Egypt. She is uh, a sinner woman, came from Egypt and with pilgrims and arrived here. So I tried to make a connection between these heaps and the story of St. Mary. Well, I read the story several times, especially by Sophronius, the patriarch of Jerusalem. Then when I start digging, as you know, systematic excavations and reading the pottery and make analysis of the uh, architecture and trying to solve all questions, need the answers. So after that, I found that we have the results. Then I asked my previous uh, documents, especially Abel uh, or Apple. He visited the site in uh, 1932. And I tried to make a connection between his description and what I found here in this place. Uh, Abel gave us uh, uh, pictures and uh, showing some arch system still existed during his visit, but now it has not existed at all because removed. And I hear that the Ottomans or the Turkish armies used as a station, used this place as a station on the eastern bank of the river. Then when I start and continue working day after day, we found that there are remains of two rooms. One maybe for her living and the second one which was used as a prayer hall. So I thought that this is the place of St. Mary of Egypt for the first time, because it's still depending here on the remains or the discovered remains or architectural remains, uh, artifacts, uh, pottery, coins, etc. So all these remains give us a hint or uh, a, a clear evidence is that maybe 
dated to the period of St. Mary of Egypt. In your book, you say that you think Mary of Egypt may even have lived at this site. And I found that interesting because obviously in Sophronius's version, she lives somewhere deep in the heart of the desert. But your research led you in a slightly different direction. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Why do you think that she may have actually lived in this place? And, and tell us a little bit about what you imagine there. Yes, Abel told us he's the first who notified us, who pointed to this place when he visited this area in 1932. And it was a good place during that time. It is not as we found it. It is destroyed by environmental resources, by human activities, by agricultural activities. The site was severely suffered from destruction caused by human and nature. And also, Phronius, when he mentioned her story, he refers that she lived on the eastern bank of Jordan River. So we have another indication from Patriarch of Jerusalem, Sophronius, in his story. And also, the direction of the two rooms, it's directed to the east as a church direction. And also, we have the narratives of the local community refers to these two rooms, as they call it, the, the Lady uh, Palace. Mm. Which lady and which palace? Uh, so this uh, pushed us to think more and more. And I asked those elders who are living in this area, the Bedouins and those travelers uh, coming and go back and the farmers who are still using the area, what about this place? And they said, we call it Palace of the Lady. We don't know which lady, but there is a holy woman lived here in the antiquity. That is, that's such an amazing story that the local people would have held on to that name for that long. What do you make of that particular name? How do you interpret that tradition? Yes, her story is famous here in, in Jordan, I mean, on the Eastern Bank, that there is a lady lived here, but nobody knows the name that she is Mary. And also we have the two rooms, and uh, one for living, one for praying. We have the name Palace of the Lady, which refers directly to a woman has a story, has a narrative lived here, and also we have a holy area here in the baptism site where John, Jesus, and believers lived around this place, around her rooms. And also we have a Roman road called Isbos Jericho passed through this area beside her rooms. That area or that road was called the Pilgrim's Road during the Byzantine period. We excavated a lot of archaeological remains scattered along the route alignment. And also we have monks community here uh, beside her rooms. We have uh, more than four churches discovered very close to her rooms and the monks' caves uh, located uh, to the east of her room. So all these indications pushed us to say that re really, or approximately, that this is the place St. Mary. All these elements really pushed us to go to this conclusion as this is the place or the real place of St. Mary of Egypt. Can you tell us a little bit about the pilgrim tradition? And you've referred to the Byzantine pilgrims. What did they do and what were they looking for? And, and what do we know about those pilgrims? 
Yes, the pilgrims who came and visited this area mentioned uh, St. Mary the Egypt in their narratives, and they said that there is a saint uh, living here in this general area. And when we discovered uh, the rooms, we found some of these stones was uh, taken from the Byzantine church. Yani, I mean, uh, the story of St. Mary is uh, somewhat maybe later than Byzantine period, and she lived here on the memory. But anyway, the mention of St. Mary was spread all over the world. So you can hear about her story in, in all countries and in the traditions of the Byzantines. And we tried to publish several articles about her tradition and about her heritage in Jordan Valley on the Eastern Bank. And also there is a legend saying that uh, uh, a lion dug her grave. And this pushed the people that really this is a holy woman lived in this general area. So the monks, I mean, from Bordeaux, pilgrim of Bordeaux, to St. Helena, to Abu Daniel, to Theodosius, to Antonius the Meritor, Daniel, and later all those pilgrims and travelers give us a brief description about what they found during their missions. And later, Apple and other scholars try to give us some pictures where thought that St. Mary of Egypt lived here. This is accumulated information from early to late. Then we depend on these uh, traditions and depend on these results and depend on this description. Also the analysis of the recovered material from uh, the place of excavations also all together really reach us to a conclusion that this is the place of uh, St. Mary. Do you yourself have a sense why? pilgrims followed her or what was attractive about her story? And yes, followed her story because they found in this story uh, a, a holy narrative, uh, a sinner woman. She tried to find the right path. She tried to live in solitude or live in harmony or live in the wilderness in order to become closer to her God. So she left her country and she joined the, the pilgrims caravan and then she crossed the river and everybody knows how she pushed by the wind when she tried to go in the church and then she tried again to reach the eastern bank and lived here for 40 years with the animals, with the birds, with the water, with the trees on the memory of John, of Jesus and other believers. So all these detailed descriptions from the narratives pushed people and pushed the pilgrims and the travelers to look for her story, to look for her place, the real place. So that's what we found during our investigations about the stories, narratives, about any historical material found in our libraries. Everybody followed St. Mary because her story is an attractive one. You are listening to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century. You'll be inspired and informed by the excellent writing and thinking found in the pages of Christian Century magazine. Subscribe with this special offer only for podcast listeners who are also new subscribers. Get a whole year of the century for just $19.95. To sign up, go to christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. That's christiancentury.org slash in search of offer.
right behind the site of Mary of Egypt, there are those caves. I was curious if those caves are still used by monks. Yes, we found uh, caves uh, dug in the Lisan Mar formation, and this is a soft stone. And uh, most of these caves were destroyed, but we have remains of two caves that still existed and still visible from distance. And the monks who lived there tried to live in a high place to avoid the flood of the river during oh. winter and also to be away from the savage animals living in this general area. And also to control those who passed through this area going up to Mount Nebo or going back to Jerusalem and to Jericho. So the caves also played a vital role in the history of the area. And I think maybe St. Mary lived in one of these caves, but unfortunately most of these caves were destroyed during the past years. And now we still have two uh, only the two caves. Uh, we try to make some restoration and building some scaffolds to enable visitors to come and to see how it was before. So really the um, closeness of these uh, caves to the um, place of St. Mary also make a, a real connection where she lived before and then become closer to the river where they built for her the two rooms. This is such an interesting story to me. Uh, in part, I suppose you know, because in the United States, when I was studying Mary of Egypt, most of the scholars work that I was reading, who were not archeologists, but scholars of early Christianity, treated Mary of Egypt's story as if she were a legend, as if she had not lived. Yes. And so when I found your work, I was absolutely startled because in, even in my own mind, I was trying to understand, is this a person who lived and walked on the earth or is this a legend, a myth? or some combination of those two things. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, about the relationship, these kinds of stories to history, to legend. You know, how do you tell the story of Mary of Egypt about the relationship between legend and reality? I think it is not a legend, but when they said that there is a, a lion dug her grave, maybe this is an addition because uh, she becomes a saint. Father Zosimas, who visited her several times and offered her bread and some food and some coins maybe in order to help her to stand and to sustain in this wilderness, make this story very famous, how a woman can live in wilderness without external help. Then Zosimas gave her the Holy Communion, which is becomes, she becomes a saint. And uh, this is also pushed people, pushed uh, travelers, pushed uh, holy men to come and to see where these events happened in this uh, wilderness. And uh, because uh, most of the pilgrims came from Russia, Orthodox Russia, and from Europe and from state, when they came here, they came to the baptism site. But one of the baptism uh, stories is St. Mary of Egypt. So really, this is a real story. It is not a legend. We are not exaggerating when we say that we found the remains of the two rooms of St. Mary. Lyrical community also pushed us to the reality, not to the legend. When they said this is the palace of the lady, which lady? Not Mary of Jesus. No, it is a Mary of Egypt because she came here, she lived here. And uh, all the um, stories from patriarchs, from monks, from holy men refers to the Eastern Bank where he, these things happened here. This is the place of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. And before them, we have Elijah, the prophet. And then we have Elisha 
All these holy men lived here. So there is no legends. It is a reality. It is a holy place. It is a place where the heavens opened three times for Elijah when he ascended by the fiery chariot, for Jesus Christ when he was baptized, the heavens opened, the dove descended, and they heard the voice saying, my beloved son, and also for prophet Muhammad when he crossed this area to Jerusalem and then he ascended to the heavens by Mi'raj. So the heavens over this place opened three times for the three religions. This is a miracle. This is indications for the most important spot on the earth. It is not only the lowest spot on earth, but it is the most, most important spot in the, in, in the world. So we have a lot of things here going lead us to the reality and not to the legend. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your hopes for the baptismal site and, and what you want visitors to understand. Yes, we discovered the site in 1996 and I spent six years in field work with all difficulties and try to overcome all these difficulties by help of God and by help of my team and by help of my government who supported me to the end. And then after six uh, years of field work, we found that we uh, arrived to the reality. We found the place mentioned in the Gospel of John and in the other Gospels. We found the remains of the holy men. We found uh, the history of uh, humanity. And we are preparing the way of the Lord here uh, also. So I hope that we can continue our excavations. I stopped now because I joined uh, another place, which is the Hashemite University. We hope in the future to continue our excavations. It's not finished. We have finished the first phase only. And now the site in 2015 listed on the World List Heritage. And this is a good achievement for a team from Jordan, uh, a Jordanian team, 100 by 100, who uh, surveyed excavate, document, and restore the site of Jesus' baptism. And this team is 90% is Muslims. So this is another indication to live in harmony in this world. And also, I hope that we can link the site with its uh, surrounding environment, because we found another sacred areas. We found a, a place called Enon near to Salim, which is mentioned in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses number 23, and also with caves of Jesus from north to south. We have a lot of caves in Jordan called Jesus Caves, and with the traditions and local community supported these traditions. And also we are uh, started uh, documenting the route of baptism from Amman, Philadelphia, to the baptism site, from the high mountains to the wadi, to the uh, valley, to the lowest spot on the earth. We published a book and we published a map and we published the brochures about this new route of uh, baptism route, I call it. And then uh, we have uh, to link this site with the steps of Jesus in Jordan when he came through Taiparia Lakes and ascended to Jadara Umkais, where we have found a cave there and several churches in this Decapolis city, and then came to uh, Girasa, where we found 17 churches, and then goes down to Amman, Philadelphia, and then to Iraq Al Amir, where we have found now there two churches in one cave, which is, I call it, Jesus Cave, and then goes down to the river and then cross to Jerusalem. So I tried to link this site with other nearby sites. We, start, we just excavate the site and make restoration, but we still need phases of work to link the site here in the Middle East and then to the entire world. 
So I hope that I can achieve this in the next years by help of God and by help of believers like you. Thank you so much for this time that you've given me, Dr. Wahiba. I'm so fascinated by your work and by what you're accomplishing there in Jordan. And it is, it's something that I don't think that very many of my listeners are going to know about and they'll be very excited to discover as well. Yes, I think Jesus will come back to to save this world. And we Muslims and all believers all over the world waiting Jesus to come to save us from this life. Yeah, we are followers of true Jesus and we are waiting him really to come back. Thank you, Dr. Wahib. This has been a podcast production of the Christian Century, thoughtful, progressive Christian magazine of theology, politics, and culture. Visit us at christiancentury.org slash in search of to find show notes for this episode, to sign up for our weekly newsletter, and to find all the episodes of the podcast. This podcast is produced by Steve Thorngate. Editorial assistance has been provided by Annalisa Burns and Amy Adams. Special thanks to Kyle Peterson for theme music. The Christian Century is an independent, not-for-profit organization that relies on donations and subscriptions to create rich content like this podcast. Have you considered making a donation to the Century? Is your magazine subscription up to date? Visit ChristianCentury.org to make a donation and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.